Today's teaching text comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today is the new year for the church. This is the first week of Advent. Um, 
Every year we remember this is a, a season that is, is distinct in the church year. Uh, there are, are themes that we return to uh, year after year in Advent that are, are different from any other time of year. Uh, it's also uh, distinct in the church from the way the wider world, the wider culture is celebrating this, this moment, this season, um, this, this Christmas time, right? Our city, the world, um, is, is, is pumping the Christmas music in the stores, even though this has been such a bananas year. Uh, we're, we're about to be bombarded with savings. Um, we're making that pivot from uh, from pumpkin to peppermint and our seasonal beverages, and and I'm not hating on that at all. Like I uh, like a, a peppermint mocha one time a year as much as anyone. But uh, we know by the end of this, on Christmas Eve, uh, our attention is going to turn fully to the impossibility that God has come to us in in the form of a weak infant child. Um, and somehow on that same night, we're also going to Google track this elf-type man uh, who's visiting every house on the globe to deliver presents from one large sack uh, that has been transported by enchanted deer. So I, I just say that to say I, I'm not going to apologize to you for starting Advent and beginning our readings with a talking snake. Uh, I've done that, and I'm not ashamed of it. Um, Advent is a season for us that is uh, about examining the space in between, uh, in between our deepest longings and the actual world that we live in. And 2020 has put those in some stark relief uh, at times. Um, It's about the, the in between of all the promises God has made and then God actually showing up in our world in a way that we can grasp and understand. Um, it, it's, it, it's the time between God coming as an infant uh, in the Christmas story and then God coming as, as the king at, at the beginning of the, of the new age. It, it's uh, the, the time between our songs of praise and our cries for relief of pain. It's the time between the beginning uh, and the end of this impossibly long year. It's the time between the fall of the world and the victory of God. Or in the poetic language of Genesis 3, it's the time between our bruised heels and the serpent's crushed head. I like how Fleming Rutledge puts this. It's where we got the title for this series in her book on Advent. She says, in a very real sense, the Christian community lives in Advent all the time. It can well be called the time between. Because the people of God live in the time between the first coming of Christ incognito in the stable in Bethlehem and his second coming in glory to judge the living and the dead. In the time between, our lives are hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then we also will appear with him in glory. Advent contains within itself the crucial balance of the now and the not yet that our faith requires. So Genesis 3, we have this, this origin story of what is wrong with the world. And I think it's really important that it comes after Genesis 1 and 2, which is uh, the origin story for all that's right in the, in the world. Uh, the scriptures don't begin with bad news. They begin with transcendently good news, teeming, abundant, glorious, image of God bearing, union with God, union with, with one another type, type news. But against the backdrop of that good news, of that wonderful beginning of the story, the fall is profound. Its effects 
are devastating. It, it, it does set the tone uh, for our, our deepest pain, our, our deepest longings, um, the things we return to in agony over and over again in our human experience. It, it, I think it moves us in the direction of the questions that Advent invites us to ask. Um, it moves us, if you want to say it, in, in the direction of the time in between. But for me, maybe for you, the first chapters of Genesis can be a little bit like the Christmas story, especially like in the wider world. Like it's a story we have heard so many times for for many of us. Maybe you're new to this. And if you are, you're so welcome. We know we have people from uh, all all sorts of different like, you know, places on the faith spectrum. But for many of us, uh, we've heard this story so many times that it can begin to appear flat. It can be easy to dismiss. Uh, Rabbi David Foreman calls this the lullaby effect. Um, We hear something so often that we lose the ability to pay attention to it. Some of us have have gotten so used to this story that we kind of forget how absolutely absurd Genesis 3 actually is, right? And and then, right, the absurdities that are right there, despite these surface uh, peculiarities, this text is claiming to be a robust, and thorough, psychologically penetrating, spiritually revealing diagnosis of the problems of our world. What's really wrong with the world? Genesis 3 is claiming to have an answer for that. And it's a story that, whatever we think of it, it has stood the test of time as a way people have, un- have come to understand the nature of being a human being, the nature of living in this world, the nature of relating to God. So as I said, the devastation, the curse found in Genesis 3, it sets the stage for our Advent longings, which is why we're visiting it on week one. But it also sets the stage for our hope. Um, I think that it has set each generation, um, sort of depending on, on the various ways they've paid attention to it, it set each generation of humans to work again and again on trying to sort out what is wrong with our world. Why do we circle back to the same problems? What's wrong with our world and what can be done about it? So we have these questions as human beings that we need to get answers to. They're they're the big, fundamental, profound questions. How did we get here? What is the purpose of life? What's wrong with the world? Why is there so much pain? Why is there so much brokenness? How could we go about fixing and repairing and renewing things? And then how should we live? But that last question, how should, how should we live? That's where we spend most of our time. There's a whole bunch of variations on how should we live or how, how am I going to live? And we spend so much of our time on that, on that last question. What's my work going to be? You know, in general, my vocation, but also my particular like tasks and responsibilities this week. Um, how am I going to pay my rent? How am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to afford to live? Uh, who am I, who's my person going to be, right? Who am I going to date? Who's my spouse going to be? Who's my, who's my partner in this world? world? Who are my, who's my community? Who are my friends going to be? How am I, all, all that, and then how am I going to spend this weekend? What show should I be binging if I'm in a show hole, right? And we, we're trying to answer that question, how am I going to live? But, but those bigger questions are there. And even if we ignore them, they do come back to us, sometimes in surprising moments, right? Those quiet times, we're on a walk, you know, our head hits the pillow and, and we're not quite asleep. Or, or, or you know, those life-altering moments, we're leaving the funeral. Or, or we've just taken in something that's breathtakingly beautiful. And then those questions come back, how did we get here? What is the purpose of all of this? Why is it so hard? <laughs> 
Why is there so much pain? Why is there so much brokenness in the world? Why, why, why do we contend with death? What should we do about it? How would we repair things? The early chapters of Genesis are specifically addressing these questions, but it's done in this uh, multi-layered Hebrew poetry that I think is so rich. You could spend your entire life studying these three chapters and never get to the end of their gifts. Uh, But also, beautifully, you can get some idea of the scope even from a cursory reading the the first time. So here's how it begins. Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So here we go, right? Uh, We have a talking snake. And if that bothers you, good, you're on the right track. It should bother you. We shouldn't just fly past these bizarre details in the story and just think, well, I guess I'm supposed to accept that by faith and, and I'm not going to ask any questions because I just, have to, I just have to believe there he is, talking snake man. What? No, ask, ask your questions. We have a crafty snake that's talking. So uh, a, quick word, a quick word on this, because um, I actually think those little places in the story that, that are bizarre, that like cause you to, to do a double take, there's often a signpost there to say, hey, there's some treasure here. You should dig a little deeper. And when you read Genesis 1 and, and through 3, there's, there's and actually a lot of places in the scripture, you come across this literary device that we've mentioned before. It's called a chiasm. And there's different types of them. They, they vary in their complexity. But usually they have repeating words and repeating themes uh, in order to draw your attention to the meaning the author is trying to convey. So a really super quick, simple example out of the mouth of Jesus is the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So a phrase is stated and then it's inverted and repeated so that you get the, the meaning of, of, of what the author is trying to convey. So... Um, like I said, repeating these different ideas in a poetic structure to be like a signpost directing you to the meaning. There are more complex chiasms, as I mentioned. Some of them are inverted parallelisms. We're not going to get into all of that, but if you want a great introduction to them, by the way, um, you can check out this uh, this podcast called the Bema Podcast, B-E-M-A, uh, with Marty Solomon. They've actually gone through the entire Bible, uh, so it's a, it's a lot of po- uh, podcast content there, but if you want to go and listen to the ones on, on Genesis, they were helpful to me. Um, but as an example, in Genesis 1, there, there is, is, is a chiasm, and at the center of this chiasm, which for someone reading in Hebrew would be massive alarm bells going off that this is the central meaning of, 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 of this text, the central meaning of the chiasm at the beginning, uh, at the middle of Genesis 1, is about Sabbath. Now, why in a story about the beginning of the world and all that's debated about Genesis 1, would the main uh, sort of assertion of the passage be something about Sabbath? And if you start to turn that over in your mind and your heart and you remember that Torah is written uh, uh, to (laughs) and for reforming and healing and, and giving freedom and giving a new culture to people who've been making bricks in the empire of Egypt seven days a week for 400 years, it's really crucial that when they're getting introduced to the world and they're getting introduced to this God who's going to be their God, that they know this God knows when to say enough is enough. 
They know this God knows when to say it's time to rest. It's time to stop. It's time to breathe. The first day in Genesis 1 that human beings spend uh, having been made in God's image is a day of rest. They're made on day 6. Day 7 is the day of rest. And so we, we begin from this place of Sabbath in the story. Really important for all of us. Really important for Israel coming out of slavery in Egypt. The creation story is also very much, very much a Sabbath story. The chiasm in Genesis 3 uh, points to another crucial moment. The uh, the signposts are saying, don't miss this. This is essential for the meaning. And the moment in Genesis 3 that the whole thing sort of collapses in on and points to is in Genesis 3, 7. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. A poem about creation turns out very much to be about Sabbath. A poem about the fall of humanity turns out very much to be about nakedness. That's interesting. And then it gets weirder. Uh, When you hear, uh, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. There's something that, and and I kind of hate this because it's like, uh, if I I don't study the Hebrew, am am I going to see this? There's something that you actually do miss when you hear this read in English that's present in the Hebrew. Specifically, if you were hearing the Hebrew read aloud, which is Quite frankly, how most of the first hearers of this text would have taken it in. The oral tradition of Israel, they they would have heard this read. And the word for crafty, or how it's translated in some of our translations is more subtle. The word for crafty sounds almost identical to the word for naked in this text. It's almost like if you weren't paying specific attention, actually, if you didn't hear it read again, you would think the text was saying the serpent was more naked than all the other animals of, of, of the field. It's as close as Erum and Erom. And if you want to hear this, this, this read by a Hebrew scholar, you can uh, go online later today. There's a site called Blue Letter Bible. Punch in this passage, and then it'll come up, and on the side, there's a little thing that says tools. You click on that, and it'll break the whole passage down in Hebrew, and you can click specifically on having these two words read, and you're going to hear how remarkably similar. They sounded the same. They sound the same. So if you were hearing this, and it was being read to you, and then you were going to hear the word naked later in the story, it, it, it would leap out to you that now the serpent was more naked than any of the wild animals, than any of the beasts of the field, than any of the other things the Lord God had made. Now, right, we know the author's choosing these words. He could have used a different description there. Why choose a word that's so remarkably close? What on earth is this about? Couple of options. Option one, the writer is trying to show us that this beast that's coming to interact with the woman in in the story is actually the most human-like of all the other uh, animals in the garden. And, and we don't know if that means this one particular serpent or all the serpents, um, but we do have this serpent um, doing 
remarkably human things. Walking, we know it's walking because later, in, as part of the punishment and the curse, it's 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 cursed to go on its belly for, from that moment forward. So we know this this serpent comes walking. It's intelligent. It's reasoning. It's relating. So maybe the author is trying to clue us in by by the similarity of those words to say, listen, this serpent has some very person-like qualities, the most person-like of any of the other animals in the story. That's option one. Or maybe this is a setup. Maybe this is a setup for a little later in the story when the chiasm points us to the middle of the poem and we read, the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked or they realized they were like the serpent. This little trick in the poem uh, could, could help these uh, first hearers and maybe help us move towards some clues for, for what the true nature of the deception and the temptation and the fall that's presented in Genesis 3 is, is really all about. Because when I read it, it seems like a pretty simple story for all that falls out of it, for all that comes from it. Surely the whole world wasn't broken just because someone ate some fruit from the wrong from the wrong tree but what you begin to see is as you get into the details the serpent wasn't offering simply a bite of fruit of course that's the case basically it was a denial of what God had said made them humans in the first place. What God had said made them beings distinct from all the other beings in creation that bore His image, that, that bore the capacity for spiritual union with God, distinct from all the rest of creation, made on day six at the apex of this, this moment of God pouring out His glory into the world, uniquely depositing it in the human race. And it was a denial of that. That's actually what it seems like the author is trying to tell us that the serpent is coming after. And the moments immediately after they fall to this temptation rings out that maybe the serpent's trick worked exactly right. He moved them from being this apex of creation, bearing the image of God, the glory of God, walking with Yahweh in the cool of the evening to being just like the other beasts of the field. Basically saying, the best you can hope for is to follow your desires. You're going to be just like every other beast. Your highest authority is going to be your wants and your instincts and how you perceive your needs and how you curate your own desires. Which actually, quite interestingly, makes the theme of Genesis 3 and Genesis 1 similar. Genesis 1, we meet a God who knows when to say enough is enough, who knows when to rest, who knows when to, to participate in and give Sabbath, who has, I think, who has the restraint of a great artist who has gotten his creation to a place where it is flourishing and it is flourishing in, in, in enough. It is teeming. It is abundant. It is enough. And then Genesis 3, the temptation that actually comes through is that God is actually not offering you enough. That there is more that you need to go out and get on your own. That's the temptation the serpent offers. 
that in fact you're going to have to meet the deep needs of your life out of your own resources. You're going to have to go your own way. You can't really trust this God to meet the deep needs of your life. You can't really trust this God to honor the deep quaking of the desires that reverberate in your soul, that God's not going to truly pay attention to those. So I want you to see how it goes down. Like just, just pay attention one more time to the details of the temptation. This remarkably human ser- uh, serpent comes up to the woman and he says to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, right away, whatever's happening here, there's doubt being planted about what God has said, actually said, intended to say. When you read it in English, I'll be honest, the first thing that stands out to me in that sentence is the word any, because he hasn't said uh, that you can't eat from any tree, right? We specifically know that's the difference. He said you can't eat from this one specific tree. But in the Hebrew, the, the emphasis is not on the word any, it's on the word say. Basically like, did God really say that? Like the way you and I would be recounting a conversation and you hear that a friend of yours said something that's deeply offensive to you and you're like, did they really say that? That's the emphasis in Hebrew. But whatever the serpent is doing, it's planting doubt. What's God up to here? What's God trying to do that this doubt is being introduced? The woman said to the servant, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, when God gave the uh, commandment to Adam, he didn't say anything about touching it. So we had the first example of legalism. They've added to the commandment. We don't know exactly, right? The rabbis, the scholars debate, where did this addition come from? Where did this first example of legalism show up? Did Adam get the command from God? And when he passed it on to to, to the woman, uh, add this in so that we, they weren't in any danger. We're gonna see the Pharisees doing this in Jesus' time. They're fencing the Torah. They're trying to keep people anywhere uh, far away from coming anywhere close to actually breaking the law. But whatever it is, we have an addition to what God has said. So what God has said is being called into question. What God has said is being twisted and added to. Then the serpent says, you will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, for all that we come down on the serpent about, and there's a lot to to come down on the serpent about here, but he says some remarkably true things right here. In the middle of this deception, he says you will not certainly die. And guess what? They eat the fruit and they don't die in the way you and I would expect. It's like God somehow is delaying that in a way that doesn't immediately show that that should be how, 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 it's going to, how it's going to work. Also, why is this tree called the knowledge of, of good and evil, right? If, if God has given this, them this instruction already and they know that it's wrong to do, then they already have some level of knowledge of good and evil. So it'll almost be like you could really only get punished for eating from this tree the second time. Once you have the knowledge of good and evil, then, then you'd be liable for, for, for what, you've, what you've done. But what, what, what's going on here? The serpent has twisted just enough, introduced just enough doubt, suggested that maybe God isn't providing for quite enough, suggested a very reasonable way to go forward to meet the deepest needs or the perceived needs of your own heart. And then when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and here's another addition, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. Where did that idea come from? She took some and ate it. 
She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. Now, just for a second, I want you to look at what draws her, because I said all the peculiarities of the story, you can miss how psychologically penetrating, how spiritually revealing, how, how, how thorough it is a diagnosis of what's gone wrong in our hearts, what's gone wrong in our worlds, what's gone wrong spilling over uh, generation after generation in the human story. The things that draw her away are, are these categories. It was good for food. It was pleasing to the eye. It was desirable to make one wise. When you, see, when you hear this listed later in the scriptures, it's, it's things like the lust of the eye the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Uh, These archetypes, consumption, security, status, um, uh, the, the needs of my body, my appetites, my ambition, my desire for approval. These are the fundamental things that the human story returns to over and over again, trying to get an answer for, trying to get enough for from some other source other than God. And that's the fundamental nature of the temptation that's taking place in Genesis 3, right? These are the archetypes of our deepest longing and the temptation to go and try to meet those in some source other than God, out of our own resources or out of something that's present in in the world that God has made to, to elevate that thing to ultimate, to elevate that thing to God, whether that thing is us ourself or something else out there. I love how Lewis says this, and, and uh, it's a long quote, but at the beginning of Advent, the, the slate starts clean, folks, so just deal with that reality. Here we go. This is from Mere Christianity. What Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea they could be like God's could set up on their own as if they had created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empire, slavery, the long, terrible story of of, of human beings trying to find something other than God which will make them happy. The reason why it can never succeed is this. God made us, invented us like a a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol and would not properly run on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. That is the key to history. Terrific energy is expended. Civilizations are built up. Excellent institutions devised. But each time something goes wrong. Some fatal flaw always brings brings the selfish and cruel people to the top. And it all slides back into misery and ruin. In fact, the machine conks. It seems to start all right and run a few yards and then it breaks down. They are trying to run it on the wrong juice. This is what Satan has done to us as humans. This is what is depicted in the temptation, the deception, and the fall in Genesis 3. The result is that our world is broken in a fundamental way. We talk at TGC about broken along four relational lines, our our relationship with God being broken. 
means that our, our identity, our self-understanding, how we perceive our place in the world is, is distorted, is, is misaligned, is, is riddled with shame, but also our relationships are broken right in the immediate aftermath of the story. There's blame shifting, there's tension, there's, there's enmity in the story between, between the people, but also the world, right? It becomes hard to work. The ground is not, is not producing its fruit. There, there's, there's, there's personal brokenness, right? There's sin and wounds and, and idols and addictions that we get wrapped up in. There's relational brokenness. There's rivalry. There's strife. There's unforgiveness. There's betrayal. There's systemic brokenness, right? There's racism and wars and, 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 and violent cycles of oppression that show up generation after generation. There's supernatural brokenness. There's temptation and accusation and lies and, and strongholds and deceptions and temptation. And we can reason all of that. It's nice if I could put that on a slide for you and show you the results of the fall. But I want you to feel the pain of it in the story. Because that's how God gave us this. He gave us a story. Right? Because if you just take these meanings and you try to just extract them out and you don't have them embedded in something, they're never going to take root in your heart. We certainly feel the pain of this in our lives, so let's see the pain of it for the first moment in their lives. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Right right away, the blame shifting. And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. There's so much in there. Why is nakedness such a, such a big part of this? What's going on? There's also some heartbreak in the question that God asks, where are you? There's two Hebrew words for where. The first one is like, where are you? I have no idea. I have no starting place for knowing where to begin looking. The other is, uh, I left you right here. Where are you? You're not in the place you're supposed to be. And this where is the second where. Then this question, who told you you were naked? Who told you you were naked because what? Because you've always been naked. Why have you become ashamed of how I made you to be? Another way to ask it is, what other voices have you been listening to? Right? And that question reverberates across the story, reverberates across the ages, bounces into our minds and our hearts at the beginning of this Advent season, and it's put to us, what other voices have you been listening to? We know they have been listening to the voice of the serpent, right? And, and from the voice of the serpent came these malformed desires that have played out in our hearts ever since. These desires make us like the beasts, right? They, they make us want to simply live for something like sex or money or, 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 or power instead of remembering our true identity as image bearers of God, as image bearers of a God who knows when to say enough is enough, 
uh, the, the, the rabbis say one, one of the names we have for God, El Shaddai, right? It's really difficult to translate, but when you, when you take out the, the, um, the vowels and you're left with the consonants, essentially it's a, uh, saying this, this God, sometimes that, that word El Shaddai is translated the Lord Almighty, but when you, when you, when you take out the, the, the vowels and you have the consonants there and you're trying to get it, what exactly does this name mean? It's basically something like the God who knows when to say enough is enough. A God who knows when to say Sabbath. A God who knows truly in exactly the right proportion how to meet the deepest needs of our life. And who's saying, don't settle for some false identity and being just like the beast. I've made you distinct from all creation. My image bearers. They're deceived, they're tempted, they fall, and, 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 and it leaves them to wallow in shame to hide, right, that first drop of insecurity into the soul of a human being, and, and we wrestle with that. It leaves the world broken. It leaves the world cursed. As a part of God's consequences, he says, I'm going to put enmity between the offspring of the woman and the serpent, uh, b- b- between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. This is just another way of saying our world is broken and it's going to roll out across the generations. God, self, others, world of fracture at every fundamental level. So what do the people do? They make some pretty bad clothes for themselves. They sew fig leaves together. And interestingly, God, in the devastation of this moment, after the glory of Genesis 1 and 2, and now the devastation in Genesis 3, and the brokenness spilling out across every level of human life, God comes to them and he sees their bad clothes and he doesn't say, what have you done? That's so ridiculous. These, these, these fig leaves, this is what you're going to... He, he moves in compassion. He actually makes them better clothes. And the rabbis note that the first act of... of El Shaddai, the first act of God, the first act of Yahweh and Torah is an act of compassion that he makes clothes from Adam and Eve. And we know that an animal has to die, right? When sin comes into the world, separation from God, and now this cycle of death begins. But God's first act in Torah after the fall is an act of compassion. Do you remember God's last act of compassion in Torah? (laughs) He buries Moses takes him away and and buries this uh, deliverer. (laughs) A time between. Because a time is coming when God would die and be buried himself so that he could clothe us forever in righteousness, clothe us forever in inheritance, clothe us forever in our true identity as sons and daughters made in the image. You're not like the beast, you're something different. You're my son. You're my daughter. You have a home with me. Advent is about the time between. The time of our longing. The time where we light these candles of hope year after year. A small flame against the darkness of the world. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, may we know that you are near to us, God, even at the end of 2020, all we've dealt with and all the effects of the brokenness of this world that have spilled out, got a pandemic and racial injustice and the tensions of our political moment and our elections, our own pain, our own selfishness, our own strife in our relationships. 
our own desires to continually exalt ourselves or something in the place of you, God, come and show mercy. We know you love to show mercy. Show mercy to your people, God. Come and meet us in our deep longing, in the darkness of this time of year. Meet us with Advent hope. Meet us with the expectation that you are coming, Jesus. I pray this in your name. Amen.